Back in 1948, black families in Johnson County got fed up with the quality of education at a two-room schoolhouse. So they started their own school in living rooms. We fixed it up as near as a classroom as we could. I thought it was great. How a lengthy school boycott and six very brave children led to the integration of a Kansas grade school five years before Brown v. Board. Check it out on the podcast of People's History of Kansas City. Up to date wants to know what you're talking about with family and friends. You can text UTD to 816-601-4777 to tell us. Again, 816-601-4777. This is Up to Date on KCUR 89.3. I'm Steve Kraske. There's no denying that the human impact on the Earth's climate and ecosystems are significant, so much so that it's driving a new geological age, the Anthropocene. It's an idea that Elizabeth Colbert knows well. She's an award-winning environmental author and staff writer at The New Yorker who's been talking and writing about climate change for more than two decades. She won a Pulitzer for her 2014 book, The Sixth Extinction, which breaks down the human drivers behind biodiversity loss. She'll be speaking at the Linda Hall Library for an event called Welcome to the Anthropocene, an evening with Elizabeth Colbert at 7 p.m. Tuesday, and she joins us now. Elizabeth, welcome to Up to Date. So good to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. And just a note before we begin, Linda Hall Library is a KCUR sponsor. Well, Elizabeth, you've been covering the climate and environment for more than two decades I guess that the conversation around these things has changed a whole lot since then, but in other ways, maybe not at all. What do you make of climate efforts these days? Well, as you, as you say, the, the conversation has, I think, really changed over the last uh, 20 years, which is a very positive development because when I you know, started out writing about climate change, it was very much, you know, sort of an under the radar issue and right. very hard to get people interested in it. Um, you know, that being said, uh, here in the U.S., uh, we have not really made a tremendous amount of progress. And globally, you could argue we've, you know, actually gone the opposite direction. I mean, hmm. carbon emissions, which are uh, the cause of climate change um, have only gone up and up in the years that I've been writing. So it's a to call it a mixed bag, I guess, is to be is a, sort of an understatement. You know, it sounds discouraging. How, how do you handle that idea, that part of it? Well, I, I see my role as you know, I'm a journalist. I see my role as uh, writing stories uh, that present the information that people need to make, you know, informed and important decisions. Um, and I try not to let the fact that, you know, that it is discouraging um, pre prevent me from doing that. You know, now that being said, I, I it, you know, it is discouraging. It is discouraging when you've been writing about an issue for a long time and you see um, that you see this sort of disaster coming down the train tracks and and not not nearly enough being done hmm. to avert it. You're speaking Tuesday at the Linda Hall Library, as I mentioned, uh, for an event called Welcome to the Anthropocene. Explain exactly what the Anthropocene is. The Anthropocene is this, you know, it's, 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 a, it's sort of a 
a geological concept or geological time period. Um, and the idea is that you know, technically the geological epoch that we live in is known as the Holocene. And that's the period since the end of the last ice age is about ice age about 12,000 years ago. So in the enormous glacier that covered much of the Northern US, New England, much of the upper Midwest um, started to melt. Since then, we've been in this epoch that geologists would call the Holocene. But many geologists look at what humans are doing to the planet, the tremendous impact that we are having, which is you know, really geological in scale, and say, we are no longer in the Holocene, we're now in this new era that has been sort of informally dubbed the Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. What kinds of impact are we talking about when you talk about the impact of the influence of humans that's been mostly negative so far? Well, when we talk about the Anthropocene, we're talking about, you know, what what kinds of impacts have humans had on the planet that geologists, uh, whatever, you know, whatever species they might belong to, many, you know, millions of years could still see inscribed, you know, in the earth. And if you think about this, and this is sort of an intellectual exercise that, that geologists have undertaken, um, and they found that there are, are many things that we're doing now that are having you know, world altering and for all intents and purposes, permanent effects. So just a couple would be, uh, we are, you know, putting a lot of carbon into the air mm -hmm. that will be preserved, that record will be preserved in the rocks of the future. Uh, we are changing the landscape very dramatically, we're um, converting, you know, very diverse forests into monoculture crops, that pollen record will also last for a very, very long time. Um, we've dammed most of the world's major rivers. That changes the sedimentation patterns um, that uh, will also have a discernible effect for millions of years. We are, if you think there's now what is called technofossils, you know, mm -hmm. your old iPhone or all that plastic, that, that is in its own way fossilizable. Those will be the fossils of the future. So those hmm. signals will also be discernible. So the list goes on and on um, of, of ways that we are, we've completely altered the nitrogen cycle by um, pumping lots and lots of nitrogen fertilizer onto our crops. Um, that signal also uh, will be sort of permanently inscribed. Do you think most people, you know, based on what you're saying here, have the right understanding of, of just how big an issue all this is? Well, I think people feel, you know, increasingly like something pretty big is going on, um, especially, you know, in terms of the climate, the climate, you know, climate change, unfortunately, is only one aspect of the Anthropocene. Um, but, you know, I doubt, I don't think people, you know, a human lifetime, you know, e e even if you're, you've been on, on the planet for several decades now, you, the world that you were born into was already a radically altered world. And to take that really long view and say, you know, how are people changing the planet that will be permanent, basically, for all intents and purposes, as I say, permanent, um, that you sort of need to take a pretty big step back. And I think it's it's worth doing for people because it 
it does give you a different perspective on things. And another signal that will be permanent, and I should should have mentioned this before because I think it's it's a key one, is that we're driving a lot of animals, a lot of species extinct. So, you know, the record, the fossil record of the future will not contain uh, all these animals that we have driven extinct. And it will contain lots and lots of, you know, for example, rat bones. You know, we've, we've brought a lot of species like rats all around the world mm. to places that they would not have um occurred had we not, you know, carried them on our ship. So we're really sort of scrambling up the bio, these biological communities. And that too will leave a, a long, long lasting record and will have a, you know, permanent impact on evolution going forward. You know, you mentioned these animals that are disappearing. One of the bigger examples we've seen in our area is recently is this notion that the monarch butterfly population saw its second smallest overwintering population ever this year. Just one more example? Unfortunately, yes. I mean, the monarch, the decline in the monarch population is is very sad. I'm sure everyone is really sad about it because everyone, you know, monarchs are beloved and beautiful and wonderful creatures who perform this extraordinary migration. Um, and the, the this latest decline is is being linked pretty directly to climate change, um, to drought in the mm-hmm. parts of the in the southwestern, you know, sort of US where they need that they need to travel from from their wintering grounds in Mexico to up 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 into the Midwest and and Northeast where they where they spend the summer. And the Linda Hall Library exhibition that you're speaking as a part of, Elizabeth, focuses on birds specifically. They say that birds have declined in North America by more than three billion over the past 50 years. What impact does that have on the rest of our ecosystem? Well, I think, you know, one of the sort of one of our, our shortcomings, I guess you would say, is we as a species is we don't, you know, we don't have a very good handle on, on, on what that means, even though, you know, many, many scientists are, are working on it, but, you know, we're not sort of part of those natural food webs where, you know, one, the birds are eating the insects and the, you know, raptors are eating the, the birds. And, and um, so I don't think we have a very good, sense of how that, you know, terrible decline in our native birds is rippling, you know, through ecosystems. But it's a very sobering, it should be a very, very sobering, you know, uh, thought to people. Are there other at-risk species that stick out to you from here in the Midwest that maybe should be getting more attention? Well, I mean, one big I, I wasn't sure where you were going when you were when you talked about monarchs one 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 group of animals that's been very hard hit in the in the midwest and also in the northeast is bats mm. we have this um fungal disease called white nose syndrome i'm right. sure a lot of your listeners have heard about it. it is sweeping the country um it's in all 40 states now i think the last statistics that i saw um, and it's had a terrible, terrible effect on bat species that hibernate for the winter. It, it 
attacks bats skin it wakes them up when they're hibernating they they don't have a enough energy to sort of get to the spring if they wake up during hibernation because this fungus just sort of irritates them and eats into their skin. Mm. Um, and so millions and millions of bats are now missing. And that also has, you know, potentially huge ripple effects through these food chains. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Panasonic Energy. Powered by Kansans, Panasonic Energy is working to drive a greener future for transportation with advanced EV battery technology. More at na.panasonic.com. Plants don't have brains, but they are capable of communicating and maybe even forming memories. Do you think plants can think? No. Absolutely. What do you mean by thinking? I'm Kate the Chemist, and on my podcast, Seeky Scientist, we're exploring the possibility of plant intelligence. Seeky Scientist, made possible by the Stowers Institute. Your Pulitzer Prize-winning book, as I just mentioned, The Sixth Extinction, it discusses history's five mass extinctions and places humans at the center of the sixth, which you say is happening now with this loss of biodiversity. You know, it strikes me that the book has recently been adapted for younger audiences. Why, in your view, was that a necessary move? Well, you know, young people uh, will inherit this planet, and um, they both need to know what's going on. And, you know, in my view, we need to get them enlisted um, in this effort to try as best as we can to, you know, change our trajectory and minimize uh, the, the species that we're losing. I, al I also want to ask you about the, the work that we're doing here in the Kansas City area, Elizabeth. It seems like the Metro could be trying to establish itself as a strong climate player in the Midwest with some of its larger scale projects. We've got a climate action plan that wants net zero emissions by 2040. The city's working on developing what's expected to be one of the largest solar farms in the country right up by our airport. There's other stuff going on. I wonder what you make of this kind of work. Well, I... I certainly applaud it. I applaud every effort, you know, both to call attention to this issue and get, you know, raise awareness and, you know, even more to get something done. Um, so I, I absolutely, you know, applaud it. I, you know, do think obviously the, the issue with all of these plans, and there are a lot of plans out there, is implementing them. Mm -hmm. What do you think cities like ours, what else should we be thinking about when it comes to implementing these policies and and changing our infrastructure? What what else needs to be on our agenda? Well, I think one of the big things that needs to be on uh, on our agenda in this country and that has not yet really risen to the top of the agenda is is thinking about car culture. We are a very, very uh, car, dependent culture um, and cars, even electric cars, you know, are a lot of energy goes into producing those cars. And, you know, at this point, electric cars are a pretty trivial part of our transportation network. So we really, I think, need to be focusing on better public transportation, more walkable cities um, and getting people out of their cars. That's a heavy lift, though, and an extraordinarily costly one, too, isn't it? 
It is a heavy lift. Um, you know, we have in a lot of parts of the country sort of almost dismantled our public transportation systems, which is, you know, tragic. And I think, um, you know, that's another thing I think that where I think the young people really should should be active, are active. I think, you know, a lot of young people don't have cars these days. Um, and I think that they are really on the forefront of trying to imagine, you know, different different forms of mobility. We should have, you know, better better biking. I mean, it's it's not that difficult uh, in in especially in an urban setting to get people out of their cars. It it, it, it is doable, and many cities have proved it. You know, Paris for one. And it's also not lost to me that there's definitely more that could be done outside of our metropolitan areas. I'm thinking about Kansas, Elizabeth, that's been dealing with significant drought for the past few years. Recent reporting highlighting some towns that are actually running out of water. And even then, you know, swift action doesn't appear to be in the offing here. Why do you think it's so hard for us to take real uh, dramatic steps to deal with some of these issues we're talking about here? Well, well, I've been thinking about that one for a long time. Yeah, right. and I, I wish I had a I wish I had a simple, straightforward answer for you. I think there's, you know, people, one of the ironies, as it were, of climate change, maybe the ultimate irony is, you know, it's changing everything everywhere all at once. Um and people don't like change, but but everything that we do to sort of perpetuate the way we're doing business now, keep things as the way they they are right now. Um is exacerbating the problem and ensuring more change. So we're in this kind of, you know, terrible, terrible cycle. And unfortunately, you know, getting people to sort of recognize, okay, that's not coming back. The rainfall mm -hmm. patterns of the past are not coming back. Those aquifers that have been drained, they are not coming back. And so we need to think very differently and people feel, you know, very threatened by that. And I, I totally understand that. I'm very sympathetic. I don't like change myself, but 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 we are dealing with massive changes. And the more we resist dealing with that, the more change is going to head our way. You know, you mentioned aquifers. The big one out in Kansas, of course, is the Ogallala. And opinion is actually divided out here about whether strict conservation measures should be implemented or whether ranchers should just, you know, be able to use it all up until it's gone and worry about the consequences then. You know, even something that that dramatic has divided opinion wrapped around it. it nothing strikes me as easy on this front. Yeah, I I I I think that you you've 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 nailed it. You know, nothing is easy. Um, you know, it would you know restricting uh, water withdrawals from the Ogallala would impact a lot of people. It would have big impacts. But when you when you think about it, you know, when you say, okay, well, let's just keep doing what we're doing and, and let someone else worry about it. I mean, that really uh, let you know let our kids worry about it. That that sort of exactly exemplifies you know, what we're doing right now in so many different realms. And, um, you know, it might sound okay when you say it, except for then when you say, well, look, think about your own kids, your own kids are going to deal with this. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it doesn't sound, um, uh, it sounds like something that would make parents feel, you know, pretty awful. 
Award-winning environmental author Elizabeth Colbert is my guest. You also have another book coming out soon. It's titled H is for Hope. It's a series of essays that came out of a series that you did for The New Yorker. And I think from a bird's eye view and from close up, you know, it's hard to find hope in this climate crisis as we're talking about here. I want to ask you about the title of the book. Are you trying to take on a sense of optimism with this with this new one? Well, I think that, you know, people would say we're we're at this important sort of, you know, hinge in history. And as you alluded to, there is a lot going on in terms of, you know, finding new energy sources and finding new new ways of, of, of doing things that are either carbon free or much less carbon intensive. So for the first time, it seems like, okay, there is a possibility that we could, you know, really reach net zero in a in a foreseeable future. Um, at the same time, so there is, you know, a lot of optimism around around those developments. You know, at the same time, we are not implementing them. There's just a lot of resistance um, to change, and then we are not implementing these. Uh, new technologies or new ways of doing things nearly as fast as as we need to to avert, you know, pretty bad consequences. So I want the book to look at both both of those sides. I think it's important to to take up both both of those um, possibilities and and emphasize that we are really at a critical moment. You know, speaking of this book, uh, Elizabeth, it's described as inspiring alarming, and darkly humorous. I wonder about that humor part. Why do you lean into that kind of storytelling in this new book? Well, I I myself am a, a big fan of, of, of dark humor, I guess. <laughs> I think that there is, you know, as, as dark as things are. I was just reading a piece today about, you know, sort of the growth of, of climate change humor, which, you know, seems like an oxymoron, but um, is apparently a burgeoning, you know, growth industry. And I, I think that, um, you know, a lot of writing about the environment and about climate change is, is, is written in a tragic tone and, and rightly so I'm not saying that that's not justifiable, Mm -hmm. but I also think that people do need some, some comic relief. It helps a little bit, doesn't it? Exactly. Well, that's Elizabeth Colbert. She's the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Sixth Extinction and a longtime staff writer for The New Yorker. She'll be speaking at the Linda Hall Library for an event uh, titled Welcome to the Anthropocene, an evening with Elizabeth Colbert. It'll be at 7 o'clock Tuesday evening. Elizabeth, appreciate your time so much. and uh, Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Up to Date is a production of KCUR 89.3. The program is produced by Zach Wilson, Elizabeth Ruiz, Claudia Brancart, and Hallie Jackson. Our intern is Lauren Texter. Paul Nakatura works our board. The theme music was composed by the great Bobby Watson. I'm Steve Kraske. Thanks for listening. <laughs>